Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. I'll give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll, kiss. I'll even kiss the men. I'll kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by T, the Empowerment Alliance. The Empowerment Alliance fights for affordable, clean, domestic, and abundant energy for America's energy independence. They want to keep the politics in this podcast and out of the energy industry. If you want to learn more about the Empowerment Alliance and what they're fighting for or help support the work they're doing, please visit teaoggn.org. That's Tango Echo Alpha Oscar Golf Golf November.org. And there will be a link in the show notes. I can tell you these guys are incredibly passionate about promoting American energy independence, and I hope you'll check them out, sign up for their newsletter, and see what all they're doing. They make this show possible, and we very much appreciate them. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I'm your diminutive and aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your ATM of reckless opinion. So grab yourself a cup of coffee, and let's get into it. So first thing I'm going to say... Um, first thing I'm going to admit to is that I've been naughty this week. I was really busy with my day job, had a lot of stuff going on, and I didn't have time to sit down and do a deep dive piece like I usually do. Uh, a lot of the, the pieces I've done so far involve quite a lot of reading and research and double-checking dates because I don't have all that stuff memorized. And this week I just didn't have time for all that. So we're doing something a little bit different tonight that I thought would be fun. I've gotten some of the folks who are listening to this to send me in some questions. And um, to save me the trouble of having to do a whole lot of research on a week I've already been quite busy, I am going to go through these questions. I haven't done any research on these or given them any thought. They're just here. I'm going to go through them like a list. And I'm just going to rattle off my thoughts on it extemporaneously, and um, we'll see what happens. So this could be the episode that gets me canceled. We don't know. Uh, I haven't had time to give these any kind of thoughts, so it's just going to be me riffing off the top of my head with whatever it is I'm thinking. So uh, there's that disclaimer, plus the disclaimer that any factual data I say could well not be very factual. Again, I haven't researched any of this, and so this is all coming out of my memory, which is uh, admittedly addled by caffeine, tobacco, and alcohol. So there's really no telling how accurate any of this is going to be. But, you know, it's like they say, if you heard it here, you probably heard it wrong. And, yeah, tonight we've got a um, nice um, uh, uh, sort of pecan-infused coffee is what we're sipping on because that's what you do at 8 o'clock on a Sunday night. And, um, yeah, let's get this party started. Let's, Let's tackle some questions. So first question, thoughts on the... Chinese balloon and why we didn't shoot it down sooner. Okay. Um, so my thoughts on the Chinese balloon is it's obviously a spy balloon. I, I mean, I don't know that for a fact. I haven't physically examined it, but I, I think pretty much we all know it is, right? Um, 
so yeah, my thoughts on this. Uh, so first off, we absolutely should have shot it down sooner. The thing should have been shot down when it was like coming up over Alaska, right? I mean, I think we can all agree that it getting all the way to the Atlantic before we gunned the thing down was uh, was a dummy move. That was a that was a stupid play. Um, now, did we detect it before then? Did we, you know, it seems like, from what I recall, we had detected it earlier, and they just kind of said, "Ah, oh, fuck it, it's fine. We'll just let it go." And yeah, 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 that's a stupid call. We shouldn't have done that. Um, there's kind of a window here with that balloon that is that is interesting, right? So, like, it was at an altitude of I think I read sixty thousand feet, and the problem is that most of the aircraft we have, fighter aircraft. Um, can't really get above, like 60,000 feet is like the very top of their ceiling for most of them. Um, it's, some of them, it's actually lower than that. But like the F-22, which we only have like 190-something of, uh, that actually can overfly. I think its altitude goes up to, you know, at least officially 65,000 feet or something. Um, and that's pretty high up for a fighter aircraft. Like, it's just not an altitude they travel at too often. So shooting that mis- that thing down, that balloon... Um, is problematic for a couple of reasons. One, obviously lobbing a missile at it seems expensive and stupid when you've got a cannon on board, you know, that 20-millimeter Vulcan or whatever it is they've got on, on, you know, F-35s and F-22s. But the problem you run into with shooting at it with, with the machine gun, with the cannon, is those shells land somewhere. And if you're... Shooting at it from close to level, which you basically have to with most fighters because you can't get a high angle of attack on it, right? If you're going to shoot it down, you have to shoot it down either coming from above down at it. That's the best likelihood of getting a controlled landing spot for the shells, right? So you'd have to have shot it down over the ocean to minimize the chance of killing anybody on the ground or hitting structures that you probably shouldn't be shooting at. I mean, once the thing got over land... Shooting it with shells became pretty much not a possibility. Secondly, those balloons and the altitude and the pressure differential, putting a whole bunch of holes in it, it's going to take a long time for the thing to, to come down, and you can't really control where it's going to land. So admittedly, I will say this. It's stupid they didn't shoot it down sooner. They should have hit it down over the ocean when the thing was getting close to Alaska. Once it got over land, it does become a very tricky thing to gun down because if you shoot at it from level or close to level, those shells, you have no idea where they're going to land. You don't know where the debris is going to fall or who you're going to kill when it comes down. Um, For as much flack as Biden and co. took for not shooting it down sooner, once it got over land, it was he pretty much had to let the thing run its course. Now, the real question is how far out at sea before it got over land did they know about it and do fuck all? That's the real question. Um, once it got over land, yeah, I get it. You can't just shoot the thing down anywhere because the, the apparatus, the actual sensor apparatus, was something like uh, two to three school buses in size. Like, it was a huge, huge thing. And sending that crashing down... Uh, to 60,000 feet below was going to probably land on somebody or kill I mean, that could have caused a lot of problems. So I get why they didn't shoot down once it got over land. It became very tricky. But my question is, why didn't you gun the thing down sooner? And um, why did it even get over Alaska and, and Canada and all of that before we did something about it? And also the fact that this is not the first time China sent spy balloons over here. Um, you know, China's really pivoting more towards the the warrior wolf 
type diplomacy, and they're getting away from the sunshine and smile policy diplomacy, and that's been a, a big issue the past you know six months to a year, really since Trump took office. That's you know they've taken a much harder line approach uh, in their diplomacy, and honestly, you know, and listen, I've got my own criticisms of Trump, but. One area where he was right is we had to take China more seriously. I mean, hell, even Biden's Secretary of State said that Trump was right about that. And I mean, for that guy to agree with Trump on something's pretty much unheard of. So you know if those guys are, are agreeing, then there's got to be something there. But yeah, in my opinion, it should have been shot down way sooner. It should have never been allowed to get over the mainland. And um, that's the real problem. Not using a can to shoot it down, I get that. That gets really tricky because the bullets are going to land somewhere, and because of the altitude and the angle you'd have to shoot it, there's no telling where that would be or who you're going to hit. And there's pretty much nothing worse uh, politically of a catastrophe than shooting down a Chinese spy balloon but inadvertently popping off a few few of your civilians in the process. Um, Then the argument would be, why didn't he wait till it was over water and do it there? Yeah, yeah, he should have, and he did. But they really should have done it on the other side of the, of the country. They should have knocked the thing out of the sky when it was near Alaska. Um, there's, I don't know what the excuse is going to be for that, but that's what they should have done. That's how this should have gone. So there we are. Um, all right, next question. Is the World Economic Forum beneficial or just talk? And this is from Noah. Uh, the last question from Cece. Um is the World Economic Forum beneficial or is it just talk? So, uh, in my opinion, tell me something positive they've done that you can point to. I mean, can anybody listening to this like point to a thing they've done objectively that's positive that's come out of that? Or is it just a bunch of rich people flying to Switzerland or wherever and having some kind of, you know, quote-unquote conference? I mean... The short answer is I don't know a whole lot about the World Economic Forum. I just don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. It's not something I've done any research on. And there's nothing in my head that I can can point to and say this is a beneficial thing that's brought all of this good or bad into our lives. I just don't know. Um, you know, I think Greenpeace protests the World Economic Forum, which the fact Greenpeace is protesting something – instantly makes me kind of feel like, oh, well, maybe they're not so bad. They must be on, on doing something right than if Greenpeace doesn't like them. But I don't know. I, I, I don't know enough about it to have an opinion on that that's educated. So my default answer is if I don't know anything about what they've done, good or bad, that I can point to in my realm of knowledge, then it sounds like it's probably just a bunch of politicians yakking and there's nothing beneficial there. And I say that full well knowing that I I don't have a lot of information on it. So there's your reckless opinion. Um, Okay, let's see what we got next here. Do you think we should provide fighter jets to the Ukraine? Hmm. So that's that's a complicated question. that's a good question, though. So in my opinion, uh, like in my head and like my little dream world where it all sounds fun, sure, yeah, give them some fighter jets and let's just cause pure havoc over there, right? Like, let's just see what happens. There's a part of me that thinks that would be fun. So, okay, but let's let's back it up a second. And let's talk serious for a minute. So here's the deal. If you give the Ukraine modern or reasonably modern Western fighters um, – the likelihood is 
you know, that they're going to use that to start attacking the Russian mainland, which, hey, they've been invaded. Fuck it. Russia knew what they were getting into when this happened. That's just the price you pay for going into war with somebody, right? Um, the problem you run into, though, is it does cause an escalation. If they start attacking deep strikes into the heart of Mother Russia, what's Putin going to do to to salve his wounded ego? And we know that that's, at the end of the day, what this is kind of all about, right? He's got his... um his ego that he's fighting for more than anything else, really. So the problem is if you give the Ukraine fighters, the odds are it's going to escalate the conflict, and we're getting closer and closer to that point where Putin's going to feel so much pressure to win this thing that he's going to do something really stupid that may lead us into a full-on you know, global conflict in a much more serious way. I mean, they were... You know, it was months ago when they started saber-rattling about nukes. And it's like, dude, you're in a ground war with a on paper, wildly inferior opponent, and you're losing. And you're already talking about wheeling out the nuclear card? I mean, Jesus, what happens if the guy shows up? You know, what happens if Zelensky gets a fleet of F-18s or something like that? I mean, that's going to cause chaos, you know? So while I think that would probably help Ukraine... Ultimately, I think that would be an escalation that would cause a lot of problems for us down the road because Putin's Putin's going to have a hard time just, justifying like ratcheting up to real live tactical nuclear use um, without there being you know just a ground war. He's going to have a hard time justifying that um, even in his little you know KGB brain, but you start getting relatively modern fourth fifth generation fighters in there. Um, when Russia's already getting kind of mauled by the by the war with Ukraine, and all of a sudden it gets a little bit easier to start justifying more excessive reactions. So I ultimately, do I think that we should give them fighters? I kind of want to, but man, I can really see that kind of spiraling out of control in a pretty bad way. Um, there's also the other factor, and that is there's a good likelihood that if we send fighters over there, some of them are going to get shot down because that's just the nature of things. And two, odds are some of that equipment's going to wind up in Russian hands, and you've got to kind of ask yourself the question, how much do we want them to get a hold of any of our military hardware um, at all? And, you know, the answer is, generally speaking, not. not. We don't want that to happen. Uh, if Russia gets a hold of, you know, some of our computers, targeting sensors, all that, I mean, yeah, we could send over... F-18s, that kind of thing, you know, an older fighter that's not quite the tip of the spear, it's not the F-35, not the F-22, um, which I'm certain they wouldn't send over anyway. But still, there is equipment on there that we wouldn't necessarily want Russia to get access to, and that's why we go out of our way to prevent that stuff falling into folks' hands outside of war. And, you know, I can see there being a situation where the closer that equipment is to the war zone and something goes down, it winds up in Russia, and then that, you know becomes a problem. So, yeah, do I think we ought to give them fighters? You know, if we had some kind of tuned-up F-4s or F-5s, you know, something that's really pretty old, but it's got a little bit of modern tech on it that could help the the Ukrainians out, that'd be one thing. Um, you know, personally, honestly, Jordan take right here, I would rather that a third-party country sold them some extra air power rather than the U.S. We have a very delicate game of chess we're playing with the amount of aid we're providing Ukraine while still trying to avoid this war escalating with Russia and turning into something a lot darker. So 
I would like Ukraine to get fighters. I would like them to get fighters from somebody that's not necessarily the U.S. Like let France or Germany or you know somebody else sell them some fighters. Um, so it's not necessarily our technology at risk, and it's also not us ratcheting up the um, the tension there. Uh, so the, yeah, that's my take on that. Okay, good question though. Um, all right. Would stopping U.S. oil crude exports stop inflation? This, this is a question from Grace here. Uh, would stopping U.S. oil exports stop inflation? Um, no, I don't think so. So the problem is that inflation is a combination of a whole bunch of things across the entire market, and it's really not just oil. I mean, oil in and of itself is... And there's actual economists on this network that talk about this sort of stuff, so I'm sure I'm going to speak incorrectly on this topic. But off the top of my head, my answer is no. Inflation, which I could do a whole episode about, but effectively inflation is oil prices, commodity prices, kind of do their own thing more or less in accordance with the market. So if we stopped exporting oil... Um, what you would realistically wind up with for a while would be kind of a, a glut of somewhat unusable oil because we'd still have to import the difference. Uh, we don't have the refineries to take care of all of our refining needs for the type of crude that we produce here in the States. That's why we may produce as much or more than we need some years, but we still have to export some of it and import in the, uh, the crude that's more to, to the processing capabilities of our refiners. And so... That's a whole separate thing from inflation. Inflation is, you know, oil, because it's a commodity, it kind of ties to whatever the global commodity prices are. You know, even if we were an entirely energy self-sufficient um, nation, you really would still kind of be pegged to whatever the global oil price is in a lot of ways. It wouldn't just mean that oil is whatever we decided is internally, because at the end of the day, <clears throat> if we start charging way more than the outside market, somebody's going to come in and say, well, why aren't we just buying this from overseas and get it for way cheaper? And businesses are smart. They're going to say, oh, yeah, obviously, and they're going to do that. And so, no, exporting oil... I don't see that um, having any real substantial effect on overall product inflation. And I don't think that, um, yeah, I just don't think that, uh, that that would matter. I think it'd be better if we could do more refining and we could be energy self-sufficient, obviously. And I, we could you know start working towards actually cornering the market in other ways in the energy sector, aside from just being energy independent. But Inflation's a whole other issue that goes way beyond oil commodity prices. That's the short answer. Um, it's a great question, though. Okay, moving on. How do recession fears affect proposed oil policies? Um, so I think it differs from country to country. You know, one person's the U.S. being the largest economy in the world obviously has a ripple effect. If we think a, re a, a recession's coming and we start doing quantitative easing and monkeying with things to try and stave that off, that has a global impact because of the fact we're the world's largest economy. On the other hand, if, like, I don't know, Bangladesh decides they're about to have an, you know a recession and they start doing stuff, it's not like that's going to affect us because... Pff, 
you know, it's they're <clears throat> you know they're they're the little fish in the in the big pond. Like, it's just they're it's not going to really affect us. But our politicians do things to stave off. So we monkey with the currency. We monkey with how much debt we're putting out, interest rates, all this sort of stuff. Do quantitative easing. And um, that does affect oil policies because you start getting into taxation, tariffs. Uh, you start getting into, you know, especially if it's if there's concerns that there's going to be any sort of a fuel shortage or, you know, the, the demand's not going to meet what the supply needs. Uh, in addition to a recession, then you start running into issues with international commerce and all this sort of stuff. So, I mean, the short answer is... How do they? How do recession fears affect proposed oil policy? Well, the answer is quite a lot potentially, um, just because of the interconnected nature of our economy and the global economy, and also the fact that energy is wildly politicized in this country, um, while yet still not being state owned, which is kind of funny for as, as political of a topic as of it as it is. But the reality of it is. It's very hard to kind of predict what that's going to be given each recession sort of has its own little, uh, you know, take take the recession we hit in the Obama years. Um, it, it kind of counterintuitively, uh, you know, there were a lot of oil policies that were, you know, enhanced regulation and all that because it was the Obama years. But uh, while the world was slipping into this big recession, oil prices actually kind of skyrocketed and went through the roof. And the reason is that the demand was not slowing down necessarily, or not as much as other things were happening that were affecting the economy. And production was not high enough to meet that demand. And so oil prices and the oil industry overall did quite well, uh, even though the country itself in general was in recession. And so the real thing is that's going to be a factor on that is how much oil policy is if there's a recession concern and if the policies are all about pushing energy transition that will have more of an impact on oil policies um than just the overall economy slumping that would be my answer to that um don't know if that was helpful but there you go Okay, next question. Let's see what we got here. If energy transition happens fast, what are the implications for oil exporters? How big of a deal will it be? So, uh, yeah, here's the here's the thing. Energy transition can't just happen overnight. Um, if it were to, so right, it just can't happen overnight. We I mean, let's let's clear a few things up here. So, one, at some point in time in the future, there's going to be some sort of energy transition, okay? It just, it is what it is. Technology is constantly changing. It's constantly improving. 150 years ago, the idea of us having gasoline to power things was a, a pipe dream. Today, it's what we use to fuel everything, you know. It is what it is. 150 years from now, who the hell knows what we're going to have? We're going to have nuclear power, antimatter, I have no clue what we're going to have. What I will say is, while that change, whatever it looks like, is going to come, I'm probably going to be dead by then, and so is more than likely most of the people listening to this podcast. We're not going to see entirely what that future looks like. That's, you know, the, the linear nature of time, as it were. But that transition is not going to be overnight. It's not going to be that fast. 
What I can say is it's obviously going to have Okay, like so so to take your question, let's go into a, a fantasy world for a second where let's snap our fingers and let's pretend that tomorrow morning the world has gone entirely on electric. Completely infeasible for a whole lot of reasons, and I can point you to a ton of resources to to look that up. I mean, just you know, look at the age of the US's power grid for one, just couldn't happen yet. Um we don't have a way to fuel planes and boats that are, you know, powered by fossil fuel, all the things. But let's just pretend for a second that that was fine. Let's pretend tomorrow that that magically existed and we all had it and the whole world was electric. Just boom, done. The problem is, uh, for oil exporters, which your question is, what are the implications for oil? So the implications are a lot of countries go bankrupt overnight. I mean, look at the Middle East. Look at... Brunei, look at Saudi Arabia, look at pretty much anybody in the Persian Gulf, look at Turkey, who has a huge refinery base. That's how they make a lot of their money. Most of these countries, but especially those Middle Eastern ones, um, and I mean even places in the U.S., have oh, the majority of their economy is based around oil and gas. It's based around um, exploring and producing and refining and shipping of, of petrochemicals, fossil fuels, whatever you want to call it. And if that were to vanish overnight, these are countries that were, would go instantaneously from being cash-rich megapowers to bankrupt. I don't know off the top of my head what the exact figures are for, say, Saudi Arabia, but I can tell you that almost all of their money, I mean, the vast majority of their money comes from, from oil exports. Same thing with Qatar, same thing with uh, the United Arab Emirates. You know, these are all countries whose entire economy hinges on oil and gas. And so if that vanishes overnight, they don't have anything. I mean, what's Abu Dhabi got? Some nice hotels and and some islands they built? I mean, what else is going to keep that place going? Why else is anybody hanging out and fighting over uh, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran? Listen, if there was no oil there tomorrow or we didn't need oil to power things, we'd care a lot less about what's happening in the Middle East at any given time. We'd just kind of go, hey, if you're not messing with us, you can do whatever you want over there. We just don't care. The whole reason we've monkeyed with Iranian politics or with Iraqi politics or have dabbled in any of those places is because there are serious, you know, strategic implications of the commodities there. But by and large, you know, I mean, listen, you've got, um, you know, I take Saddam Hussein, terrible dictator, bad guy. We're happy he's out of power and he's dead. No question. But we certainly cared a lot more about getting rid of him because he was in charge of, a, of an oil rich nation. Um, we tolerated a, a lot of bad behavior from some of these despots in Middle Eastern countries because they have a lot of oil. On the other hand, you go to a place like Thailand that has some really crazy laws. You go to a place like, uh, what was it? Um, God, was it Argentina that had the dictator that had the death squad? Pinochet, was he Argentinian, Peruvian? I can't remember, but Pinochet was a dictator in South America, and I can't recall which country he was dictator of. But the point is, uh, he was doing real wicked bad stuff, rounding people up, having him executed, all that. And it's not like we were chomping at the bit to go in and do regime change. Why? Because there wasn't a lot of reason strategically for us to do that. We didn't like the guy, but say la vie, it is what it is. If natural resources disappeared tomorrow from the Middle East, yeah, the U.S. all of a sudden 
all of a sudden Prince Sultan Air Base doesn't seem quite as important. You know what I mean? Like, it's just it's how it's going to work. So, one, the transition's not going to be fast, to your point. Um, and two, the implication of that transition is really uh, significant for these countries that literally everything they have is built on the backs of, of oil and gas. And a lot of them understand that. I mean, MBS, um, the leader of, of Saudi Arabia, even knows this. He's even made the point of saying that they have to have a, a you know, he put out, what was it, the 2050 plan or the 2030 plan? It was some sort of a long, like, multi-decade plan that he put out before he was in charge, talking about how they needed to diversify Saudi Arabia's economy to deal with the fallout of what happens after oil. How does Saudi Arabia function after oil? And you know, any of these leaders over there, and some of them have that kind of forethought, some of them don't, but the smart ones are going to look at it and go, yeah, over the next century, the economics are going to change. Over the next hundred years, we may not be raking in the kind of money we have been, and we may not have this sort of unlimited bank account that we've had to do all the crazy stuff like build islands and giant skyscrapers and hotels and golf courses in the middle of the fucking desert. Um, yeah, when you've got unlimited money, it's fun to do all that stuff now. But, you know, there's Tempest Fugit, my man. Like, that's that's eventually going to dry up. And, you know, once it does, how are these countries going to get by? Um, and, you know, <laughs> a lot of them are kind of, you know, they've got very, you know, like no alcohol, you know, no gambling, those kind of hardcore rules. So you're not exactly going to win the tourist market. Uh, just because of the social, religious uh, implications of the culture. So, yeah, it, the effects are going to be massive. And a lot of them don't have a solid answer for how to replace the coffers with what they're going to lose once that happens. Lucky for them, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be as fast as everyone thinks. But eventually it will happen. And um, when it does, it's it's going to change how a lot of the it's going to change how those countries operate it's going to change the geopolitical sphere massively because all of a sudden very likely that place you know i mean countries that wield a huge amount of political power just by virtue of the commodities they hold they're they're not going to matter as much they're not going to have the voice that they're used to having that they've had for the past 50 years you know when they they made opec and started using the cartel muscle to get what they want so it's going to be fascinating to watch um, but the odds are we're not going to be around to see the full implication of that just because it's something that's going to be generational change, and, and that takes time. So, yeah. All right, next question. Let's see what we got here. Let's have a little coffee sip, and we'll see what we've got. Mm. With all the COVID acquisitions, do you see a consolidation of oil and gas companies? Are mom-and-pop companies in danger? Um, so the answer to that is, yeah, there's been consolidations, but you know, oil and gas always has, as long as I've been in the industry, which is about 10 years, it's, it's a ever evolving beast, the consolidations, mergers, divestitures. I mean, that you can make the argument that maybe there was a spike of that sort of stuff because of COVID, but I mean, honestly, there's always, I mean, 
oil and gas is all about, you know, at least in this country, it's all about making deals, finding something, offloading it, having handshake agreements. I mean, it's one of the best good old boy systems still in, in any industry in this country. Um, so I don't know that COVID necessarily changed that dramatically. I mean, there was an impact, don't get me wrong, but it's it's not like acquisitions were unheard of. They were still happening. Maybe they, they spiked up a little bit because of COVID, but I honestly think really what you saw was a whole lot of the giant companies kind of divesting themselves of the less, uh, you know, their less profitable assets, and then the smaller companies kind of trying to jump in and, and get on those bandwagons a little bit more. You saw less productive wells being shut in. Um, there was a little less risk in the market. Uh, overall, do mom and pop com- or mom and pop companies in danger? Um, I don't think so. Not really. At least not in this country. Uh, the biggest problem is not the acquisitions necessarily. The biggest problem is access to capital, I would say. So the the oil and gas industry historically has been very just super, uh, what I like to say, recklessly optimistic. And that is as soon as the market's good, they are just just grabbing a bottle of rum, throwing it back and saying, hell yeah, boys, we're going to drill a hole here. Let's raise a couple million dollars. Let's make this thing happen. And everyone goes, hell yeah, there's going to be some oil there. It's going to be great. And everyone just gets in this whole thing and everyone just buys into the dream. Um, And what's interesting is since COVID and all of that, it seems like Everybody's been a little bit more restrained. And I mean, I don't want to say this too loud and jinx it, but it seems like the oil and gas industry has been a little bit more responsible, a little bit less uh, high on the hog, if you will. And so I don't think, uh, to answer the question, I don't think mom and pop shops are in danger. I think... The, the biggest threat is not of them getting gobbled up by some super major. The biggest you know issue is can they get access to capital from banks who are being a little bit more stingy, investors are being a little bit more cautious about what they've been willing to, to take a risk on. And I think in general, everybody's just keeping the belts a little bit tighter than they were, say, 10 years ago when, you know, I mean, I remember very clearly, I'm kind of going off on a tangent, when I got my first uh oil and gas specific job when I was at Wolfpack and we had an owner call us up and you know oil had been at like 110 a barrel and then it dropped overnight to well not overnight but it dropped down to I don't know it was like 50 60 dollars a barrel or something and these owners would call us up and they were just beside themselves and I remember one guy in specific was raging about how he had never seen anything like this in his life, and oil is supposed to be at a uh, hundred plus dollars a barrel. And you know, I bought this jet, and now you're telling me that I have to sell my jet because this is outrageous. And I'm a good dude. First off, oil's not been triple digit all that long, and you got used to that lifestyle really fast. And secondly, also, don't expect sympathy from me that you have to sell your fucking jet, okay, man? Like, just settle down, okay? But it seems to me that that attitude has kind of passed a little bit because as oil prices have gone up and gone down and done all the wacky stuff, and never mind the fact we all know that the oil and gas industry economically is a cyclical beast. We've all seen it go through the, the motions, right? But it seems like this go-around, we've been a little bit more, you know, the royal we, the editorial we, the industry we. We've been a little bit more responsible. We've been just a hair less uh, less out of control with it. And so 
yeah, no, I don't see the consolidation being a big concern. I, it's a thing that always is happening in the oil and gas industry. And yeah, COVID may have caused an uptick, but it's really more of a an uptick in divestitures from what I saw anyway. Um, but mom and pop shops, they're going to be, as long as they can keep their spending reined in, they're going to be fine. Um, eventually, banks will start to open up and, and release capital, more and more of it. And, you know, the odds are at some point the optimism is going to come back with that same sort of spendthrift mentality that we've always had. Uh, but maybe not. Maybe we've grown as an organization, as a, as a, you know, industry. I don't know. But no, I don't think that's a problem. Uh, do we have the infrastructure for moving to all electric, Chris? Um, no. It's <laughs> a short answer, man. No, we don't. Um, first off, our power grid in this country was pretty much built in like the 19, like 40s or 50s or something, maybe even older than that. Our power grid's really wicked old, and it's not designed to handle the transmission of the amount of power it would take to be all electric. That's thing number one. Um, thing number two... We don't have the the charging stations as readily available for people to switch to all electric. We don't have the capacity to transmit that much electricity. And by the way, if we transmit that much electricity, how are we going to generate it? You know, in concept, I like the idea of renewables. I think it's a good thing to kind of take the edge off. Um, but the reality is renewables can't do it all. There's They just don't make enough power. And there's not enough of that infrastructure existing to do that either. And so what are you talking? You're talking more coal, more natural gas. And we don't even have, you know, really the infrastructure in those spaces to go fully electric in automobiles, never mind the fact that we don't have a replacement for planes and, you know, uh, uh, ships and things like that. So you still have to have petroleum products to make that stuff happen for the time being. Um, so, yeah, no. Can we move to all electric? Do we have the infrastructure today? No. No, we don't. And what's more is it really doesn't seem like we're doing a whole lot to tackle the really fundamental infrastructure in this country anyway. Um, you know, there was that big wildfire in California a couple of years back that was because the power line, the hook that held it up basically eroded through because it was like 90 years old and nobody had gone out there to change those in the better part of a century. And you have that kind of a problem all across this country. Our infrastructure was built for energy transmission and it wasn't built for that level of, of volume and it hasn't been maintained. Um, and to upgrade everything to do that would be wildly expensive. And don't get me wrong, we probably should be staying more on top of upgrading this stuff. That's that's a thing we should be doing. And I think we should be increasing its capacity and all that sort of thing. But yeah, we're not there today. And it doesn't seem to be on that many people's radar is that important of a thing to do. So I'm, you know, to, to answer your question in the most short way possible, no, nah, no, nah, we don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the infrastructure for that. And what's more, we're not going to have it for, for a while. You know, it's going to happen piecemeal. It's going to happen slowly, but it's going to take. This is part of what I said with that other question. It's going to take decades and decades for this stuff to happen because there is no consolidated, concerted effort to make it happen. Um, this involves it being in everyone's best interest to do it and for all of this stuff to be relatively efficient. And at this point, it's just not. Right, wrong, or whether you like it or I like it, it's just not efficient yet. Um, and that's the bottom line. So, there we go. Next question. 
Should Oklahoma get rid of the state income tax to drive in more business? Um, yeah, yeah, they probably should. Uh, income tax is stupid. It's possibly, you know, barely legal. Taxation's theft, all the libertarian, you know, stuff. But, no, reality of it is, sure, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, now I know a couple of you out there are going to be like, but Jordan, you said a few episodes ago that we should be paying more in taxes. How can you say to get rid of the income tax? Well, first off, two things can be true at once. I do think we should probably pay a little bit more in taxes to pay off our debt if we can do it responsibly. That's what I said before. But also, just because we should do a thing doesn't mean I want to do a thing, right? I know that I should drink more water, and yet I drink an awful lot of coffee and scotch. I know I should drink water, I just don't. I know we should pay more in taxes to help our debt and our, our country and all that. Doesn't mean I want to. Yeah, there you are. So should Oklahoma get rid of debt? Yeah, absolutely, I think so. Um, would it drive in more business? Probably, maybe, possibly. Um, I think taxes is a little less the issue. I mean, I don't know what Oklahoma's tax rate is uh, off the top of my head, but I assume it's probably not like really prohibitive. Um, you know, Texas has seen an influx of California and, and uh, Colorado businesses coming down here. But I think that's not just taxes. I mean, taxes are definitely a part of it. But I also think just overall there is a a friendliness and a drive to to get businesses down here. And some of those states, like California and Colorado, tend to get can get and have gotten you know hostile to a lot of industries, and that's proven problematic. Now, the other thing to keep in mind, though, just to flip the coin on that, is. Sometimes governments give way too many incentives that cost us, the taxpayers, a lot of money to get a business to come down here, and then we never get reimbursed on those incentives. Like, we give tax credits and abatements and give property away and do $1 rent for a billion acres of land to build a factory and then have to pay taxes for three years and all that sort of stupid stuff. I mean, I could do a whole rant on that. But a lot of places do really stupid um uh, incentives to get businesses to come to a place. And I can't think of anything specific to Texas, but I'd have to go research it. But that's one area where we'd want to watch out for. Like, I think, you know, Texas is not, um, Texas is fairly business friendly. No individual, uh, you know, with state income tax, which is nice. Um, would Oklahoma get business from that? Eh, maybe, you know, one, I mean, I don't know. Who you are. Do you have any pull with the Oklahoma State Legislature to get this? They're not listening to me, man. Let me just be clear about that. They they don't care what I think about their tax scheme. But if they did, I would say, yeah, get rid of state income tax. <laughs> if it happens, you can thank me. Hashtag Jordan Tax Freedom. So, yeah, should they? Yeah, it'd probably be cool, but I don't think they will. And even if they did, they have to have policies that are fairly business-friendly. And I don't know... My assumption is it's not unfriendly to business up there, but that's the other half of that equation if you're going to drive additional businesses to your state. All right. Um, where are we at here? About 42 minutes in. So I'm going to knock out one more question here, and then um, we'll close it out. Uh, why is the oil and gas? Why does the oil and gas industry have such a problem with adopting new technology? <laughs> All right. Uh yeah, that's I like that. So 
my prior life before I worked where I work today, I worked for an oil for a software company that did oil and gas accounting software. And how can I put this delicately? So the oil and gas so first off, obviously that's a blanket statement. I know a lot of oil and gas companies that are really investing in technology and, and doing fantastic things and really, you know, really upgrading things. So okay, listen. I've said that disclaimer. Yes, we're not all a bunch of, of Luddites. Now, I'll say this. The big problem to your question, dear listener, is there is an age gap in the oil and gas industry. And this is no secret. We all know about it, right? So many of the folks in oil and gas were in oil and gas 30, 40 years ago. And there was sort of this generation, this lost generation that never got into oil and gas. And this is not some like amazing divine, oh my God, Jordan's discovered this this great secret. No, everybody knows this, okay? I'm just parroting what smarter people have come up with. But there's sort of this lost generation that never got into oil and gas. They just didn't work in it. And so now you have an influx of a younger generation, you know, your millennials and, and your real, real tip of the millennial Gen Xers that are kind of getting involved and maybe even some Gen Z, if that's whoever it is that's after millennials, I couldn't tell you. But you've got kind of this gap where Gen X really wasn't involved in, in oil and gas all that much, and it was all kind of the boomers and further back that were driving it. And so there's a really big age rift in the industry, and that has been coming down. It has been getting better, but there's still that divide. Most of the people in decision-making capacities, at least at companies that I've worked with and for, um, are from a couple of generations behind me, right? And while, I, like, I'll give you an example. I was an um, assistant controller at a company, and we got a new ERP and accounting system, and I said, you know, hey, I just looked at the report, and we're spending a couple thousand dollars a year on air-conditioned storage, and so I went to go see what was in the storage, and it turns out it was a printout of every general ledger transaction for uh, 30 years, Every transaction from every year the company existed was printed and put in a binder and stored in these air-conditioned storage. I said, why don't we get all these scanned in, digitized, put on our cloud, and stop paying, what was it, it was like $25,000 a year in, in storage fees. I mean, this is outrageous. We're paying for a lot of storage. That's a lot of money that it seems stupid. Like, server space is, is cheap. Why are we spending twenty-five grand on this? You know, that's, that's nuts. Um, and my boss, who was several decades older than me, was absolutely not on board with that idea because, by God, we don't know if we can trust the cloud. We don't know if it's safe, and we know with paper it's safe. And I'm like, well, yeah, unless somebody flicks a fucking cigarette in there, the place is going to go up like a building full of old dry documents. Um, but no, we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it at the time. We had to keep all the stuff 30-plus years. And... That's kind of the mentality, right? Like, the younger generations are going to look at this and go, okay, what's the simpler, easier way to do this that doesn't involve a lot of paperwork? And, and the older generation, not to get all ageist, is going, eh, I don't know about that lad, you know? And not to just shit on people of an older generation. They've been around doing this for a long time. So there is an element of they know what the fuck they're talking about. On the other hand, there's also an element of there are simpler, faster, more efficient ways of handling this stuff. Why are we not looking at that and saving money and doing more creative things with it? 
And there's not kind of that bridging generation in between saying, well, yeah, but that's not a bad idea, or oh, here's how we can take that idea to sort of this 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 middle way. Um, because of the divide, uh, and like I said, it's getting better, it's coming down, you're getting younger people in leadership positions that are changing that, but for a long, long time, that was not the case. And I mean, I can point to any number of companies that I've worked for in the space that that just, when you've got an, an owner and a C-suite that's in their 70s or 80s, they're just not really going to get the idea of, uh, you know, digitizing, you know, why do we even care about this? You always have to have paperback. You know, and that's one example. I'm come up with a thousand. But that kind of that kind of thing sort of uh, exemplifies that issue. So why is there a problem adopting new technology? I think in general, painting with a real broad brush, it's all about um, the age divide and comfort with that technology. And, and also just technology is rapidly changing. And, you know, I mean, there was a time I was on top of every single thing that was happening technologically, and I still think of myself as a pretty savvy guy, but uh, guess what? I don't know how to use or have downloaded TikTok. I don't know. I stopped at Instagram. That's where I called it a day. Uh, so now it's like, you know, oh, did you see that new TikTok? Get the hell off my lawn, kid. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what that is or how to use it. So, listen, time catches up with all of us. Um, it's going to get there eventually. So yeah, I think that's that's what we got time for. Um, that was fun. That was fun. Uh, I appreciate those of you guys that um, that wrote in or, or gave me questions to to hit. I will try and do this um, from time to time. I think is just have these questions kind of stored up and then do an episode where I either hit them or maybe I'll start having a section where I do a couple of smaller questions during the episode. Um, if you want to send a question in, please send it to jordan.driscoll at oggn.com. And I would be happy to keep that on the uh, on the docket uh, tackle at some point. I um, want to thank our sponsor, the Empowerment Alliance, again. And I want to remind you, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that this is Jordan Driscoll. All right, see you guys on the next one. Bye. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. Thank you.